Good morning, Boker Tov. This week, this week we have the uh, privilege of a double parsha, Tazria and Mitzora. The uh, beginning of Parsha Tazria, page six hundred and eight in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. As always, we'll do our overview. Maybe have the chance to look through some specific psukim together. Tazria begins with its own uh, topic, and then the remainder of Tazria and Mitzora really deal uh, combined with the same subject with which we are all familiar. I don't know that we're good at it, but we're at least familiar with it. So we'll get to that in one moment. But it begins with Tazriah. gave Moshe the following laws, the following instructions. If a woman conceives and she gives birth, and the Torah delineates the different laws, purity and impurity, the different sacrifices that she brings, and the differences between whether she has a, a male or a female, a boy or a girl, and so on. And the Torah tells us by Yemashmini on the eighth day, Yimol Besor Or Laso. The eighth day is when the bris takes place. Rabbi Salavechik in his Chumash points out that when it comes to a bris milah, we have two brachas that are recited. We have the classic birchas ha mitzvah, the bracha that's said on any mitzvah that we do. Before we lift the Dalad Minim, we make a bracha. Before we light the menorah, before we hear the shofar, before we light the candles, before we put on tefillin, every mitzvah is preceded by a birchas ha mitzvah, by a bracha that comes before it. In fact, just as an aside, the Yehuda Rabbi Chezkalanda was a great opponent. Uh, Hasidim introduced the notion of l'shem yichud kudsho brichu. Before you do a mitzvah, you say l'shem yichud. You try to focus your intent. You try to harness your kavana. You try to concentrate on the deeper meaning and the energy in that mitzvah. And they argued that otherwise the mitzvah is an empty act. You're doing the mitzvah, but if you're not focused, if you don't remind yourself, if you're not mindful of the deeper meaning of it, then you're not going to connect or tap into the deeper energy of it. So if you look at the Nodabu Dishchuva about this, when he rejects the introduction of saying, L'shem Yichud Kudshu Brichu, he argues, he says, our rabbis already established a formula. We already have words that you say before you do a mitzvah in order to concentrate on the act. What are those words? A bracha, the birchas ha-mitzvah. So what do we do? Because we neglect, we don't concentrate on the birchas ha-mitzvah, you're going to add a formula before that, then you'll get used to that formula. You have to add no formula before that. You'll be saying 20 formulas before you ever get to the mitzvah. Just embrace what Chazal gave us, the birchas ha-mitzvah. You say a bracha before the mitzvah, say the bracha, and do the mitzvah. So when it comes to bris, we have the alamila. If the mole is doing the milah, if the mole is acting as a shliach, as an agent for the father, the mole makes the bracha. If the father is doing the milah, even if the mole is helping him, the father makes the bracha ala milah. But there's a second bracha. It's a bracha we don't find when it comes to other mitzvahs. After milah, after the cut, there's a difference here between Ashkenazim and Sfardim, but at least Ashkenazim, after the cut is done, correctly, hopefully, so a uh, second bracha is recited. And that is, The father has merited to bring the child into the covenant of Avram Avinu, and that's the one to which we respond, not only Amen, but Keshem Shenichnas Labris. We offer a bracha, that just as the child has entered the bris, Keshem Shenichnas Labris, the Sora Lechopa Lamasim Tovim, so too, what's the Keshem, by the way? Keshem, just as. Just as. I mean, just as, with crying and tears and screaming and 
should schlep him to Torah and to school. He should be crying on his way down to the chuppah, screaming. Masim told him every time he has to give tzedakah, he should have to pry open his hand. He's crying, he's screaming. What's the kishem? What does it mean, kishem? It means that just as this child, without a consciousness, the child is just brought. Kishem shenichnas labris. The child is just part of a family that has brought him to the bris, where it's natural. It's simply something that is unfathomable that he wouldn't. So, so too his entrance to Torah, Chuppah, Mas, and Tovim should be just as natural, just as smooth, just as instinctual, just as expected as the way that he entered into the bris. So we say this bracha. Why do we say these two brachas? According to Rabbeinu Tam, Tosos and Pesachim Dav Zayin says, the second bracha, Lachniso, Briso, is not a birchas ha-mitzvah. Al-hamila is the bracha of the act of doing the bris. Lachniso, Briso, says Rabbeinu Tam, is the change of status that is the result of the bris. Before the bris, the child is an oral, is an uncircumcised. Now, it's not just uncircumcised. You wouldn't say, oh, here's somebody who hasn't lit Hanukkah candles. Here's somebody who didn't hear shofar. We don't give a status or a title or a name. We don't preclude them from participation in the community or in certain mitzvos. If you didn't put tefillin on, you could still bring a korban Pesach. If you didn't light the Hanukkah candles, you could still bring a korban Pesach. But if you don't have a bris milah, you are excluded. You have not fully entered. You're a Jew, but you don't have the full Kedushas Yisrael, you haven't entered the covenant. So the second bracha corresponds with the change of status. And the Rav quotes the, uh, the Medrash, which tells us, the evil Roman governor, Turnus Rufus, once asked Rabbi Akiva, if God dislikes the uncircumcised, rejects the uncircumcised, why didn't he just create man circumcised? If he wants or prefers after the bris, if he rejects the oral, from full participation in the community, well, why didn't he just make all men circumcised? So Rabbi Akiva said, does the earth yield bread? Does the earth grow bread? What was Rabbi Akiva saying? The earth doesn't grow bread. It grows wheat. It's a medrash tanchum in Tazria. In his rhetorical response, writes the Rav, Rabbi Akiva conveyed that just as God desires that man bring forth bread through effort, it is only man who can sanctify himself. If man wants to attain holiness, the initiative rests with him. He must circumcise himself. We mentioned last week, the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Only through the blood of his personal sacrifice shall man live on a holy plane. Without toil and suffering, there is no holiness. Holiness is the result of effort, of amelus, of toil. This is a theme which is lost in our generation. I'm not going to elaborate now, but there was an amazing article written several months ago even though it appeared in the New York Times. It was an amazing article that talked about the generation of convenience. They quoted scientific studies, research about our generation's passion, need for convenience. If it's inconvenient, they don't do it. Everything is, we've been trained now by technology and so on, that it has to be convenient. We don't like mysterious nefesh. We want everything to come, be able to download it from the app store. We want everything to be able to be replaceable every two years or three years. We want to be able to upgrade. We want everything to be able to come simply, conveniently, comfortably. But real Kedusha, sanctity, ain't Kedusha bli achana. There is no sanctity without effort, without toil. That's the beginning of Bamidbar. You can only acquire Torah. You have to be willing to die for it. You have to work for it. Holiness is the result of effort, 
of Mesiris Nefesh. And that's the imagery, says the Rav, the beginning of Pashas Tazria, the notion of the bris, the idea of the bris, the change of status. Hashem, what Rabbi Akiva was saying was, we only merit to eat bread when you plant the wheat and you nurture the wheat and then you harvest the wheat and then you winnow the wheat and then you sift the wheat and then you grind it into flour and you knead the flour with water and you allow it to rise and you bake it into bread after what our Chazal called the Sidur de Pas the many steps that are the beginning the first 13 process of the of the 39 categories of creative labor only after we exert such effort and toil then you can eat bread but bread doesn't go from the ground that's lost to us because we think bread grows on the shelves of Publix and Winn-Dixie and you know, when's the last time any of us tended to a field? To us, it's as convenient as going. We're suffering a little bit now because we're learning that there's very few breads that have achsherim left. I don't know if you've noticed that. So we're learning that you can't take bread for granted. It's hard to find bread with a hechsher anymore. There's very few. But uh, the farmer understood that bread doesn't grow from the ground. It takes great effort. And that's what Rabbi Kiva's response was to Turnus Rufus. Kodesh Baruch Hu loves us to be mohol, gamalt. He wants us to have a bris, but he wants us to show that effort. That's the bedamai chayi, the two blood the, the, that we were merited to leave Mitzrayim. I can't get out of Pesach. We merited to leave Mitzrayim, the blood of the Korban Pesach and the blood of, blood of bris milah. What the two have in common was both took initiative. They took effort. You can't sit back and wait for Hashem. Jewish destiny believes, Jewish redemption believes it's not something that happens to us. We're not passive to it. That is the biggest difference, the biggest, among the enormous differences between us and Christianity as a theology. They believe that they are entirely and wholly, W-H, unworthy, and it's only in the merit of a certain someone in his suffering that redemption can happen, but they are entirely unworthy. And we believe Mashiach will come when we prove our worthiness. I wait for him. Rabbi Salavechik and Allah Tshuva says, what do you mean? How can you have faith? What do you mean I have faith Mashiach's going to come? Chazal tells Mashiach will come when we're worthy. I know there's two versions of Mashiach. But Mashiach will come when we are worthy. So how can you say I believe Mashiach will come? Said the Rav, implicit in the that I believe Mashiach will come is I believe in our worthiness. I believe we will one day prove worthy. I didn't say the class is dedicated. Le'iloi nishmas. Our shir this morning is dedicated. Le'iloi nishmas. Chaya chana hinda bas avram shlama. So the shama should have an aliyah through the divrei Torah that we are sharing. So redemption, geula comes not passively. Not, we're not spectators to it. We don't sit waiting for it to happen. We cause it. We bring it. We're the catalyst for it. We make it happen. B'chol yom the Rebbe Zatzal brought all these campaigns he wanted Mashiach, so he didn't say, sit back and wait, let's just sing a song and he'll come. We have to be able to initiate, we have to bring. So the B'damai Chayi, the Dam of Korban Pesach, the Jews didn't sit back waiting to be redeemed. Hashem said, it's all set. I've done nine plagues, there's one more to go, we're getting out of here. I bought the tickets, flight's on time, we're booking out, it's all set after 210 years of suffering, we're ready to go. There's just one thing you need to do. You gotta take the animal that your oppressor feels is their God, and you've got to show the courage to tie it to the bedpost for four days and then slaughter it. Sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, identify as a Jew. When you show that courage, when you take that initiative, then we're ready to go. I've done everything else, but you've got to take that step. So whether it's, and the same is true for our body. 
we complete the process of the perfection of the body, and that is our partnership with the Ribbona Shalom. We partner with him in the creation of man through, through uh, the bris milah. That's why we get up and open the door when Elio and Navi comes. When we recite at the end of the Haggadah, Shvot Hamas say, God, pour out your wrath against Hamas and Hezbollah and the Iranians and Syria, maybe even the Russians who are supporting the Syrians. I don't know if it's included in Shvot Hamas. If that's real news or fake news, I don't know. But Shvot Hamas And what do we do when we say it? We sing Elio Anavi. Elio is coming. Mashiach. Can't wait. What do we do? You see the cute picture of the kid who says he didn't want to open the door for Elio. He remembers what happens last time he sat in Elio's lap. Anyway, so, speaking of Bruce Mila. So, why do we get up to open the door? The answer is because if you're waiting for redemption, if you want Geula, you can't sit back reclining. Haseba, recline when you drink the four cups. Recline when you eat the matzah. But when you want redemption, stop reclining. Get up. Go open the door. You've got to do something if you're going to bring Mashiach. The role of man in the endowment of holiness is a central theme in halacha. Says the Rav, for example, if a scribe writes a Torah scroll and does not explicitly note the sanctity of the tetragrammaton while writing the name, Yudke Vavke, neither the name nor the scroll of any sanctity. Sometimes, lately it's uh, once every couple months, I get an email, a call. There were Christian missionaries knocking on the door. They left a Bible at the door. What's the status of the Bible? Does it have to go in Shamus? I said, put it in the garbage. Put it in the garbage, Rabbi. It's got God's name. It's, it's Tanakh. It's, it's the Bible. They said, no, it's not. Because the halacha is the words themselves don't intrinsically or implicitly have holiness. The words have holiness based on the intent of the one who writes them or publishes them. If a sofer has the wrong kavana when writing a, a Sefer Torah, those learning the daf at the beginning of Zvachim, we're talking about Lishma. Lishma with Kodshim, Lishma with Gitten. You also have Lishma with, with Safras. You have to write it Lishma. If they don't have the right intent, then the Sefer Torah, it can look exactly like another Sefer Torah. The letters are the same, the ink is the same, the parchment is the same, the spacing is the same. It can look identical to a Sefer Torah. But if the person doesn't have the right intent, the Lishma, the Torah is puzzled. Doesn't need Gniza Chamura, you don't have to bury it, you can put it in the garbage. Because intent matters. Intent matters. That's where the Jew comes in. Our, we contribute the intent. It's not just an empty act, it's the intent of the act which is transformative. The Torah scrolls invented invested with holiness by man. A sacrifice is consecrated through man's designation. It's Knesset Yisrael who sanctifies Yontif. Mekadesh Yisrael, Vazman. Kodesh Baruch Hu is Mekadish Yisrael. He sanctified us. We are Mekadish Desmanim. We then sanctify the new moon. So Bris is the ultimate. We enter the covenant with the ultimate exercise or expression of our partnership, of our participation, that we're not spectators, that we're not passive, that we are fully engaged and invested in, in the process. And you see a similar thing as our Parsha continues. Because what comes after the woman is pregnant, she gives birth, a lot of halachas you derive from here, a very fascinating machlokas. I think I've mentioned this. I'm not going to mention it. We don't have time. But we, uh, we continue that the woman who gives birth has to bring what? She brings a korban and she achieves kapara. She achieves atonement. Why in the world does a new mother need atonement? This woman only schlepped a baby around for nine months her ankle swelled, she lived with discomfort, she couldn't sleep at night, she gained weight, oh, nausea. 
I haven't personally experienced it, but I've, I've been present next to someone who did several times. So she has to v'chiperala. What does she need atonement for? She created life. She brought life. It's the, the greatest imitation of Hashem, the closest we come to creating like Hashem is childbirth. So where do we need her kapar? So the Ramban, Nachmanides makes a famous statement. Why does a woman need atonement after she's given birth? Because while experiencing the pangs of childbirth, she swears to herself that she is never going near her husband ever, ever again. As those contractions are coming closer and closer together and more and more intensely, she is swearing out loud. She's cursing her husband who did this to her. And she is swearing she will never come near him again. So she needs kapara. Because due to her marital obligation, the oath cannot be annulled. And she obviously will have regret for that cursing, for that vow, for that promise. So says the Ramban, that's why after childbirth, she needs a kapara for some of the things that she said during the experience of childbirth. The Kliyakar in our parasha gives another suggestion. What's the kapara? Why is she receiving atonement? It is an atonement by the mother. Why? For the chait of chava and eating from the eitz hadas. What? When she experiences the pain of childbirth, somehow that's a kapara. That's an atonement. So my first daughter, Racheli, was born in Eretz Israel in Israel. She's a sabra, I guess, so not technically an Israeli citizen. And uh, she was born in Shari Tzedek in Yerushalayim. And uh, we had a wonderful midwife. Yechevin wanted to have a midwife, this first childbirth, who would usher her through it. And it was all a wonderful idea beforehand. But as the contractions came, she said, Epidural. I'm ready. <laughs> Subsequent to that, I joke. I'm saying this because she's not here, so I can. That uh, I always say, my wife asked for the epidural when she sees the second line come back on the pregnancy test, that's when she was ready for the epidural in anticipation. All a result of this first time. So this wonderful, spiritual, very uh, incredible midwife, someone had recommended, was uh, trying to convince her that you can't get the epidural. This is a kapara for the etzadas, for chava. You owe it to chava, you owe it to all women. You have to. She tried to convince her it's too late. You can't get it anyway. To which the doctor was telling me it's not true. She can absolutely get it. Anyway, so because of that, she had an anesthesiologist. Nothing to do with where it happened. There's wonderful doctors in Etzestral and bad doctors, wonderful doctors here and bad doctors, and it wasn't either. It's obviously Kosh Baruch She had an epidural that only took in half her body. So with each contraction, she felt the pain in half her body and didn't feel the pain. So it was half a kapara, a half a kapara for chava. So uh, what is this notion of kliyakar? What is childbirth? What does the pains of childbirth have to do with chava? Now we know the obvious answer is because after chava not only eats of the eitz hadas, but gives it to Adam to eat as well. Kashmorah gives each a punishment. The nachash, the snake, crawls on his belly. Adam, man, doesn't have the luxury of eating from the Eitz Hadas, of, I'm sorry, eating from anything in the Garden of Eden, doesn't have this endless Pesach program shmorg, but has to go work for his food. And Chava's punishment is pain in childbirth. So that is what would be the clear connection. But the Rabbi Salavechik suggests a much deeper connection. And it relates to his suggestion about bris as well. He says, every day we dive in for knowledge and understanding. So why did Hashem prohibit Adam and Chava from eating from the Eitz Hadas? 
We stand in front of Hashem and we say, Hashem, today, help me keep my memory. There's people around me whose memory is fading. Hashem, help me retain my memory. Help me have insight. Help me be able to analyze. Help me be able to learn and study. Help me be able to put together a good Parsha class. Whatever we're asking for. Hashem, if Das is something we so value that we daven for it, why didn't Hashem say, Eitz Das, it's all yours. Indulge, acquire. Why did Hashem say no? So the Rav suggests that Hashem wanted man to exert effort in order to attain knowledge. Effortlessly gaining knowledge violates his will. Right? You can't acquire Torah. Who acquires Torah? You have to be willing to toil for it. The mother acquires atonement because she rejects the exertion associated with childbirth. A rejection reminiscent of Adam and Chava when they refuse to undergo the exertion required to attain knowledge. Says the Rav, that's the, that's the, that's the connection. In other words, the mother, when she experiences the pain of childbirth, what she's saying is that the result is so worth it, it's worth enduring the pain. We say this, by the way, the last kina we say, on Tisha B'av, we sing, Elitzion. What do we say? Elitzion bevaneha ke... We liken it to a mother with her labor pangs. That what we're waiting for, the ge'ula, the payoff is so great, is so wonderful, is so worthwhile. When the mother holds that healthy little baby in her arms, she says, you know what? The last hour, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, nine months, whatever it was, it was all worth it. I was cursing, I was swearing, I was miserable, but I'm holding this little baby this little neshama, I'm holding a piece of myself, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. So the same is true with knowledge. It takes effort. It's toil. We have to work towards it. But anything that's worthwhile in life, anything that is lasting in life, takes effort. It's worthwhile. And says the Rav, that's the connection between the two. The need to wait so many days until the woman can become purified after childbirth can once again be traced to the first sin. According to the Medrash, Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge on a Friday. They waited a few more hours. Had they waited a few more hours until Shabbos, the fruit of the tree would actually have been permitted to be eaten. As a punishment for Adam and Chava's impetuousness, a woman must wait many days until her nida impurity is removed, and man must wait three years before he can eat the fruit of a newly planted tree of Orla. Many of the mitzvahs in the Torah teach us the importance of discipline, of the ability to wait. Another connection. The, the ability to be sovel, the savlanut, we've talked about this before. Savlanut, patience... The root of the word savalanut is sovel, the willingness to endure. You've got to prove that that which is worthwhile, you've got to be patient for. You have to be willing to endure the pain of patience. Being patient is painful. You have to endure, you have to be sovel to express the savlanut to get something. So this is the theme Rabbi Salvechik says is the opening of the parsha. Whether it's the brismila, lachnisa, bevrisa, shema, the status change that comes from our partnership, our participation, our contribution to the process of bris, the perfection of man, or whether it's this connection of why the woman, the ikrival of Hashem, the chiper aleha, the kapara is that she didn't want to experience the pain of childbirth because like Adam and Chava, they just wanted the etzadas. They didn't want to have to go through the amelus. They didn't want the tircha. They weren't willing to be memis atzmo Allah. But good things come to those who wait. And good thing, great things come to those who are willing to be, to, to be moser nefesh, willing to experience the pain in order to acquire it. Okay, so that is the opening of the parsha. It deals with the halachas of, of childbirth. 
of Brismila, Brismila's Docha Shabbos, and so on and so forth. The Parsha then continues, and really the remainder of Tazriya and almost all of Mitzorah deals with the laws of Tsaras, the affliction of leprosy. The laws of Tsaras apply in three ways. They apply on a person, they apply on his or her clothing, and they can apply to his or her house or his or her home. These laws of Tsaras are very, very interesting. When we read these Psukim, this seems very archaic, arcane, inaccessible, strange. Baruch Hashem, we don't have leprosy rampant today at all, physical leprosy, let alone this spiritual leprosy. It's very, very clear, all the Mephorshim point out, left and right, that we're not talking about a dermatological disease. We're not talking about physical leprosy. Because if you were, what's the halacha? To whom do you bring the person who experiences the tzaraas? To the Kohen. Where do you go into a Kohen? Go to a dermatologist. Go to a doctor. Okay, the Kohen can also tell you to put some cortisone cream on it. But uh, the point is, you go to a doctor. My father-in-law is a dermatologist. I'm allowed to make fun. You know the joke about dermatologists? If it's wet, dry it. If it's dry, wet it. Otherwise, put some cortisone cream on it. Okay. Anyway. I apologize, Abba. But, so the Kohen also can tell you that. But why are you going to a Kohen? You should be going to a doctor. And, and, and the whole process of healing. And what? If, if it's all white, then it's not leprosy. If there's two hairs that are white, it is leprosy. What do you mean? That, that, these don't follow the rules of, of uh, blemishes and wounds and, and uh, skin disease. It's not, it's not describing. Slotam Rebbe points out that what is it talking about? The, the diagnosis and the therapy to heal it are parallel to the symptoms and the illness. The illness isn't a skin-deep illness, it's deeper. Salam Rebbe points out that note the psukim say that amok min ha'or. Its appearance is amok. What does amok mean? It's deeper min ha'or. It's deeper than the skin. This is not a skin-deep malady. This goes deeper than the skin. The malady, the affliction, the problem is not min ha'or. It's not superficial. It's not only skin-deep. It's amok min ha'or. It's deeper than the skin. What's the malady? What's the root? What's the core? What's the cause? What's going on inside? Something much greater. Chazal give us at least seven different causes. The one that we're most familiar with is Lashon Hara, gossip. Lashon Hara, you bring birds, you bring two doves. Why? Just as birds chirp, 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 chirp. <coughs> we too, Lashon Hara, chirp, 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 chirp. Or they were, the birds Twitter, I think is the way Art Scroll translates. So the birds Twitter, we tweet, and uh, we use tweet. I won't make any references to people in distinguished positions and their use of the keyboard for Twitter, but the birds remind us that we got into a problem because we thoughtlessly, impetuously tweeted, whether literally or figuratively, we tweeted, and, uh, and therefore we bring the birds that Twitter, that remind us of, of that problem. So Islam Rabbi says, this is not a problem which is skin deep. You can't put some cortisone cream on saras. It's amok min ha'or. There's something deeper inside you. So Lashon is one of them. The commonality of all of the seven things Chazal tell us is gasus ruach. It's arrogance. It's I. It's ego. It's me. Thinking the world revolves around me. So envy and jealousy and, and seeking honor and gossiping about others and sitting in judgment of others. All of these at their root, at their core, is an inflated sense of self is confusing that I'm in charge, I run the world, the world revolves around me. And that thought process, that mistake, that illness, 
is amok min ha'or. It's deeper. And what's the result? The parsha says at the end of Mitzorah, We are cautioned from our tumah. Lest we die in our impurity. And the Islam Rebbe says, What does it mean? Lest we die in our tumah. He says, Kodesh created us, He invested within us. There is a piece of God Himself in us. We are a physical being, but we are animated by a godly soul. But you know, there's only room inside us for God or for our ego, not for both. So when we sublimate our ego and we live our lives in service of His will, of His vision, Kosh dwells within us. Hashem expresses Himself within us. Where can you find Hashem in this world? Look for His angels, people with extraordinary acts of kindness. I don't know if anyone saw the story from the Boston Marathon yesterday of the winner. Anyone see the story of the winner? You'll hear about it next Neila, before Neila, because it's a great Neila story. She helped her friend. She stopped for her friend to be able to go to the bathroom, and she still came back and won. But who does that? Risks their chance to win for a friend. She said, I want it. Amazing story. Hashem, Kodesh Baruch Hu, expresses himself through people. When people act in a godly way, that's where you can find Hashem in this world. That's Hashem. God dwells within us. When we are godly, we give a house. Hashem dwells within us. That's why when, when a person loses a loved one, they say Kaddish. Kaddish doesn't include Hashem's name. Kaddish, I'm sorry, Kaddish doesn't include death. Kaddish is the quintessential prayer for death. Right away, if I say death, Kaddish. I say Kaddish, Avel. What does Kaddish have to do with Avelis? doesn't even mention death once. I once heard Dr. Lamb, Salzayin Gesund, say, because what's Kaddish about? Yiskadel v'yiskadesh meirava. May Hashem's name be made great. May Hashem's presence be felt. What is death? Death is erasing a unique expression of Hashem in this world. Every human being, when they act in a godly way, they are a unique expression of godliness in this world. And when that person passes from this world, when that soul is extracted from the body and moves on, God has, so to say, lost a voice and expression in this world. And so the response, our prayer, Kaddish, and the response is, Yisgadelvi, that may Hashem's presence be expanded once again. May that void be filled with godliness once again. Very, very beautiful interpretation. So says the Slanam Rebbe, that within us, our body is a vehicle that's meant to house godliness. We are to act in a godly way, a disciplined way. Show patience, be in control, be Moser Nefesh, toil and effort, be Hashem's partner for His vision and mission in life in this world. When we do, Hashem is among us. But when we don't, if we gossip, if we judge, if we're envious, if we're arrogant, if we act in all of these ways, which lead with Tetzaras, what happens? Lo yamusu Says the Slanam Rebbe, we experience a spiritual death. Why? Because we have contaminated God's Mishkani. God wants to be a temple within us. We have purged God from us. Because if our ego is so great, Hashem says, I'm out of here. I don't need this. I don't need to compete with you. I'm greater than you. I made you. I'm everything. I'm not going to lower myself to compete with you. So if your ego is so great, if you're so arrogant, God withdraws His countenance from within us. And what happens when Hashem withdraws from within us? 
then lo yamusu. We experience a death, literal or figurative. So every Jew is a vehicle to house v'shachanti b'socham. That's what the pasuk means. V'lo yamusu b'tamasam b'tamamis mishkani asher b'socham. We are not to push Hashem out from from within from within us. In fact, at the root of uh, at this notion of tzaras is to realize that not only does Hashem dwell within us and we are to act godly, sublimate, subjugate our ego, our arrogance, our envy, our desire, our temptation, but to live a life of service, of patience, of mission, but to also realize that everything that happens to us is the result of Hashem. Within the whole process of the, of the mitzorah, the one who was motzi ra, who brought bad into the world, they weren't motzi tov, they weren't a vehicle for good, they were a vehicle, an instrument for bad. Mitzorah's motzi ra, they brought bad into the world. The whole therapy process has, we're not going to get into it in depth this morning, but we have in the past and you can listen online, is filled with beautiful symbolism of how to once again restore a sense of humility, a sense of faith, of emuna. So I'll give you one example. I saw a beautiful that Rebmelech Bitterman quotes from the Ben Ishchai. One of the steps of the purification for the Mitzorah is he has to shave all of his hair. On the seventh day, he shaves off all the hair of his head. His beard, his eyebrows, all of his hair is removed. So the Benish Chai says, he quotes the Gemara in Baba Basra. The Gemara in Baba Basra, Daftazayin says, Hashem, Hashem says, I created many hairs in man. Many hairs in man. And each hair has its own pore. So that two hairs don't draw nourishment from the same pore. If two hairs would grow forth from the same pore, it would blind the person. That's the Gemara Baba Basra. Is that meant literally, figuratively? I don't know, is there a uh, medical disease that a person has two hairs grow from the same pore that, that ruins their vision? A correlation between the two? I don't know, I never heard of such a thing. So whether it means literally or figuratively, but the Gemara says, the Baruch Hu says, I created separate pores each hair comes from its own pore. No two hairs should come from the same pore. If they would, a person would go blind. Based on this, the Ben Chai says, what happens when the Mitzorah shaves his head? He discovers what's left when you shave your head or your hair falls out. What's left? You discover each hair has its own root. And you realize that no hair takes away nourishment from another hair. And you understand that just like every hair has its own root, and no two hairs have to compete for nourishment from the same pore. So you realize that each person has his own source of parnasa from Hashem, and no two people have to compete for parnasa. No other person can take the parnasa that was meant for me. And I can't take someone else's parnasa. Isn't that beautiful? The Mitzorah shaves his head and sees the pores and realizes each pore, each hair has its own pore, and it reminds him, I spoke Lashon Hara about my competitor because I was trying to gain an upper hand. What a mistake. You know, because at the root of that is a lack of amuna, is a lack of faith. The Chazanish brings down very beautifully in um, Amuna and Bitochum. Chazanish brings down very beautifully. He says, you know, there are a lot of people who, when they're in shul, when they're in the base Medrash, they excel at Amuna and Bitochum. They're such balei amuna, such bitachon. They love Hashem, they love Hashem, they love Hashem. They shuckle, they shuckle, they shuckle. They daven, they daven, they daven. They cry, they cry, they cry. They go out to work and they are a ruthless businessman. And they try to crush the competition. 
and they try to monopolize the business and they threaten the distributor, if you give my competitor, I won't work with you. And the advertising agency, if you advertise my competitor, I won't work with you. And they try to undermine and undercut and crush the competition ruthlessly. Says the Chazanish, such a person, no matter what they say in shul, they have no amun and bitachon. They have no faith at all. Because if they have amun and bitachon, they realize Kaddish Baruch Hu is the one who provides and no one can touch what is meant for me. And the Chazanish says something astounding. He says, in fact, that business person, if they really have amun and bitachon and competition opens across the street, you know what they do? They don't threaten, they don't undermine, they don't undercut. They don't compete. You know what they do? They walk across the street, they introduce themselves to the competitor and they say, how can I help you? Let me introduce you to my distributors. Let me tell you my strategy. Let me tell you my web host. Let me give you some suggestions how you can succeed. Because they realize, I know you're all looking at me like I'm crazy. This is the Chazanish. And if you just think about it for a moment, it's so true. If you, in fact, that's the proof. It's easy to say, Baruch Hashem, Mirz Hashem, Be'ez Hashem. That's easy. But when you go to the business place, are you willing to help your competition? That, that is the proof of whether you really live a life of Amun and Bitachon. Are you willing to really say, you know what? I do my best and Hashem is the one who provides. And there's enough business out there for Hashem to make us both rich. It's enough that Hashem could provide for both of us. The Gemara Yuma says, says, No one can touch what is destined for his friend, not even a hair's breadth. No one can touch it. Kurdish Baruch Hu designates what's for each of us and no one can touch it. Ten competitors could open across the street. If they take away from me, it's because I wasn't meant to have more. And if I'm meant to make to be wealthy, nonetheless, then they can't touch what I'm meant to have. So the proof, the challenge, the test of Amun and Bitachon is not in shul, it's not how much you shuckle. It's not how worn out the pages of your sitter get. It's when you leave and you go into business, are you a ruthless, cutthroat business person or are you even willing to help the competition? So the Benish Chai says, this Motsi, this Mitzora, who is Motsi Ra, this ruthless businessman who spoke Lashon Hara because they were jealous of the competition, because they were threatened by others, because they had lust and temptation for more wealth and to amass more material goods, they shave their head. And when they see that each hair gets its own pore, they realize each person has their own source of nourishment from the, from the Ribbona Shalom, a very, very beautiful idea, a very beautiful image. We mentioned that the Mitzorah goes to the Kohen. Mitzorah goes to the Kohen. But it doesn't just go to any Kohen. Pasuk tells us, could go to any Kohen, but the Torah formulates it as, they're brought to the Aaron or one of his sons. Why would it tell us Aaron? Just say, you go to any Kohen. You're going to take up Aaron's time to diagnose leprosy? What are you taking up Aaron's time? So the Tolna Rebbe, Shlita, in Eretz Yisrael, the Tolna Rebbe, the current Tolna Rebbe says that the Torah is emphasizing that the greatest Kohenim are the ones who have to descend from their lofty heights of sanctity who leave their holy work in order to go to the Mitzorah who has fallen to the lowest depths of impurity. When someone has fallen lowly, when someone has, has now living the consequence of the mistakes they made, when someone feels on the outskirts, literally and figuratively, as we'll get to in a moment, you don't just designate some other lowly person to take care of them. 
but you designate the highest person. Aaron, Echad Mibonav. They leave their sacred work, they leave the cocoon of their holy place, and they go to that person who's so lowly. What's even more, while in the beginning of the process the Mitzorah is brought, Vahuvayla Kohen comes to the Kohen, and the Kohen interrupts his holy avoda in order to deal with this lowly person and their problems. But what happens at the end? So when the person is confirmed to have tzaras, and they live alone, isolated, outside the camp, now now it's the Kohen who goes outside the camp in order to check on, in order to check on him. So the Kohen who normally spends his time in matters of Kedusha in the Beis HaMikdash leaves the camp to deal with this person. What's the idea? And again, the Tomer Rebbe says, the situation of Tzaras is when the coin's love for every Jew is most manifest. The love does not come to the fore during normal times, when everything goes smoothly, and the Kohen is together with his fellow Kohen and basking in the glory of the Beis HaMikdash. But rather, when the Kohen leaves the Beis HaMikdash and goes Michutz Tamachana, this is when the powerful love for each and every Jew is put on full display. The Torah is telling us that the greater a leader you are, the more you have to concern yourself with the lowly, dispirited, the one who feels rejected and isolated, even the holy Kohen goes to show that, to show that love, to show that concern. And he writes the Tolna uh, Rebbe. This is in translation. Although today we do not have Mitzorayim, we do have many lost souls whom we must all try to bring back, show our utmost genuine love for these individuals, even for those whom we needed to send away so they would not cause harm to others. Just as the Mitzorah is sent away to isolation and others must keep a distance from him, yet the Kohen is commanded to love him with the same intensity as David Amalek's love for Jonas. And similarly, we must arouse in our hearts genuine love for each and every Jew, even for those who needed to be distanced. You say, if you love him so much, why'd you send him to Machana? Let him stay in the Machana. The answer is sometimes someone has to be Michutzla Machana. Sometimes there's tough love. Sometimes you have to practice tough love with someone. Badad Yeshev. You need to be alone, you need to be isolated. You don't have the comfort and protection of the machana of the camp. Sometimes, sometimes, well, you have to ask a shayla, these are dina nefashas, life and death, a school has to say to a child, you can't continue here anymore. The child is too negative an influence on others, they threaten others. Sometimes the person in the community is misbehaving in such a way, they have to be told, I'm sorry, but you can't continue to participate in the community. Sometimes within a family, a person is such a negative influence, the family has to do what is the unthinkable and practice tough love and send them michutz l'machana badad, you have to live alone. But the Tolna Rebbe says, but even when that's true, you have to go outside and show love and concern and care and loyalty, even to those who needed to be distanced. And the Gemara Megillah teaches, Baruch treats a person the way we treat others. So, says the Tolna Rebbe, if we show our love for those Jews who are far and distant and work to bring them closer, if we're willing to go, we're willing to be Yotze, to leave our comfort zone, in order to show them love, you could say this about our whole unaffiliated population, who maybe live in machanos, they live in camps that we don't want to contaminate ourselves by participating in. But you have to go and bring them back. And if we do, he says, then we have the merit, we will merit, Kodesh Baruch Hu showing or showering that love to us as well. Why is it in fact his consequence? Why does the Mitzorah set Michutz Lamachana? Why is he sent outside of the camp? So Rav Chaim Shmulevit says a very simple answer. Chaim Shmulevitz in Sikhus Musr says, because Mida keneged Mida. The Torah only prescribes punishments and consequences which are therapeutic, which help 
teach? What does it teach the Mitzorah when you send him when he lives badar, when he lives alone and isolated? Chaim Shalavitz learns us from the Gemara. The Gemara said there are four people who are dead even while they're alive. The commonality of these four people, poor person, a blind person, childless person, and a Mitzorah. The commonality of all four people, and the, the, the Gemara is not, it's not judging the person that they're dead as if they're alive. It's not proscriptive, it's descriptive. It's saying that those people are in such pain, profound pain, it can only be described as if they're suffering death even while they're alive. Suggests so Rechayim Shemalevitz, what's the commonality of all four? The feeling of aloneness. A person craves to connect with others, but often they feel very, very alone because of that challenge that they are experiencing. The Mitzorah, how does the Mitzorah feel alone? So Rechayim Shemalevitz says, the Mitzorah, by gossiping about others, made the other feel alone. You told gossip about someone, you made that feel, you know, you know what it's like? Maybe you don't. As a rabbi, you get spoken about a lot. And sometimes you even hear about it. You have such wonderful, wonderful people, good friends who come over to you and say, Rabbi, what would make a person do this? I have no idea. But sometimes it makes them feel good. They say, Rabbi, I want you to know, at the Shabbos table this past week, everyone was talking about you. But you should know, I didn't participate. <laughs> everyone was talking about you, but I want you to know, I wouldn't say one word. Believe me, there are people like that who tell you that. So, you know, when you, when you hear people talking about you, it makes you feel very alone. It makes you very suspicious of all your relationships in life. It makes you wonder, does everyone think that? Does everyone feel that? Is everyone saying that? Does everyone talk that way? That's how you feel when, when you are, become aware that there's a Lashon Hara chain in an email or text message or people are speaking at a Shabbos table. So Rechaim Hashem says, the Mitzorah was guilty of isolating another. The one whom he spoke Lashon Hara about was made to feel alone and isolated. What is, the, what is the therapy for that Mitzorah? To experience what he made someone else feel. He has to be alone. He has to live a life of feeling isolated, alone, or judged. The Chavetz Chaim has a similar interpretation. It says the Chavetz Chaim, If when within the blemish two hairs turn white, that makes you, gives you the diagnosis of Tzaras, so why when the whole thing turns white are you not tummy? It should be a kalvachomer. If when two hairs turn white, you are declared tummy. So certainly when the whole thing is white, you should be tummy. So why when the whole thing is white, are you in fact tahor? So listen to what he answers. He says, you can see from here just how despicable and rejected by Hashem the character trait of arrogance is. And how much Hashem craves, desires, approves within us when we are humble. Why? If the cause of the tzaras is arrogance, you know, to speak gossip about someone, you're arrogant. It takes arrogance. Arrogance to think you're in a position to judge someone else. You have nothing about you. How would you feel if this were being done or said about you? It takes arrogance. So, if he has two white hairs, he could lower his sleeve and cover them up. So, therefore, the Torah says no. 
such a person michutz l'shalosh machanas. If all you had were two white hairs and that one little blemish, so then you could cover it up, you could hide it, you could say, yeah, I have a dermatology problem, no one needs to see it, I can hide it, I could cover it up. So Torah says about such a person, once it's diagnosed, tamei chutz l'machana. Everyone is going to know about you that you're outside. The, you tried to make someone else feel outside the camp. You tried to exclude someone with your gossip. You're outside the camp. Everyone's going to know that you're a gossiper. However, a person who all their hair turns white, they can't hide it. They don't need to be sent michutz l'machana. It's even worse. While they remain in the machana, everyone will see it about them and everyone will say it about them. And so says the Chavetz Chaim, the laws of Tsaras correspond with the ultimate goal of this amok min ha'or, this disease which is deeper than the skin, which is to heal a person and help them realize the mistake they made and bring them back. You made someone else feel isolated and alone, so therefore you have to experience that isolation and come back and, and, uh, and, come back and only want to connect with, with others. Vesalavechik also talks about this. Badad Yeshev. Men in commentaries have noted the similarity exists between the requirement of Mitzora and those that apply to the mourner. There are a lot of parallels between a Mitzora and someone who is an Avel. I don't think we're going to get to looking at the Pesukim this morning. So maybe we'll end with this. What are the connections? Both have to do Kriya. Both tear their garments. Both allow their hair to grow before the Mitzora shaves his head as the process of of uh, coming back. First the hair has to grow. Just as the Mitzora lives in isolation outside the city, so too the mourner is confined to his home. The Avel doesn't leave his house in the period of mourning. There are a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities between the Mitzora and the Avel. But at the same time, says the Rav, there is one crucial difference between the two. In the case of the Mitzora, there's a requirement of Badad Yeshev. The Mitzora lives in solitude, not engaged in any form of social activity. According to some views, the Mitzora may not even reside together with other Mitzoraim. The Mitzora is ostracized from the community. When a person observes Avelis, however, although he remains in his home, he's not barred from social contact. To the contrary, the community comes to him, is obligated to care for and visit the mourner to ensure he's not left to deal with his loss on his own. There's another significant difference between a mourner and a Mitzora. Mourning observance are suspended on Yantif because, as the Gemara explains, the public festival celebration overrides the private personal obligation of mourning. The Mitzora is not permitted to re-enter the city or go to Yerushalayim to offer the festival sacrifices. In this case, the public midst of the holiday celebration does not override the individual's personal restrictions. These distinctions are related. The nature of Yanta festival is Amidah of Hashem, standing before the Almighty. It is the experience of being in God's presence that triggers the obligation of Simcha on the festivals. Although a mourner on a personal level feels distant from God as a result of his loss and the trauma he endures, he's nevertheless part of Am Yisrael, who collectively experienced the joy of Amidah of Hashem. The public festivity overrides his personal restrictions. The Mitzorah is excluded from the community. It's likewise distanced from the Mikdash. As such, he cannot experience Amidah of Hashem. He must therefore continue his observance of the Torah's restrictions, even on Yom Tov. So on the one hand, there are a lot of parallels. On the other hand, there's an enormous difference between the two. The Mitzorah, by the way he treated other people, is Gasas Ruach. Like the Salaam Rebbe said, he purged the Chelek Elokami Mal from within him. Hashem is no longer v'shachanti b'socham. So therefore, he can't feel l'fnei Hashem and he doesn't participate in simchas yantif. The Avel, however, was not the result of anything he did. So therefore, he's not made to feel alone. He doesn't need to experience. He does not need to relearn that process to be able to come back. A lot more to say on these two parshios.
but we will end it here. Uh, next week I have a conference on my way out, so there is no Pasha Shir next week. Have a wonderful week.